it's going to challenge something to have to think, uh, if you want to be able to understand absolutely everything I'm going to say the first time you hear it, or you don't like having your assumptions challenged, then this probably isn't the video for you. Now, what I found in my own personal experience is that while we prefer, as human beings, information that confirms our assumptions or builds upon our assumptions, we don't get a lot of growth from that. We get most of our growth when we challenge our assumptions, when we go in opposition to the ways that we think. And just because you challenge an assumption doesn't mean that the assumption in and of itself is wrong. So I'm getting information that my audio is choppy. I, I don't know what to do about that. Uh, I kind of thanks, Christina, for letting me know that. All right, so let's get into this. So I want to talk about, uh, you've heard me mention, when I talk about the right-hand path approach to spirituality and the left-hand path approach to spirituality. Now, if you Google this stuff and you Google left-hand path spirituality, you're going to come up with a lot of some, some pretty dark stuff. Um, in other words, outright Satanism and Satan worship and Luciferianism, and these things are considered to be left-hand pathways, um, whereas right-hand pathways are your more traditional religions, uh, certainly the New Age devotion to love and light, um, certainly the New Age devotion to oneness. I'm going to talk about the ego, what the ego is actually, and how maybe we misunderstand some things about ego and oneness and all that stuff. So I'm going to get into all that stuff. But let's start with what is the right-hand path, the left-hand path? The terms come from Sanskrit, which is the oldest written language, and are embedded in Hindu uh, philosophies and Hindu approaches. The Sanskrit word where we get left-hand path means to awaken. The idea of the left-hand path originally in the Sanskrit was that you awaken from the herd mentality. In other words, going with the flow of everybody else, going with the flow of society, and what is deemed good and proper and appropriate, and challenging those, uh, or, or, or devoting yourself to those assumptions. Or the right-hand path is about losing your individuality in order to become one with or experience oneness with everything or everybody or with God, whereas the left-hand path is more about self-development or self-differentiation. So in the right-hand path, you're trying to lose yourself for in order to harmonize or find union with God and people and everything else. The left-hand path, you're seeking to distinguish yourself. You're, you're seeking to discover your unique uh, qualities as an individual and express the full potential of those things. So on the right-hand path, you're trying to uh, lose yourself, lose your life that you may find it. And in the left-hand path, you're trying to individuate yourself or distinguish yourself in some way from the collective. So those are the primary differences. Or you can look at it this way. The right-hand path is the path towards community and community service or community development. It's what's best for the community. And its concern is with the community. The love and path is about, yeah, Ben says, uh, personal growth. 
The left-hand path is about individ the individual or personal growth. So right-hand path is about community. Left-hand path is about the individual. And these things don't have to be mutually exclusive. You'll see that in a minute. But where do the terms, why is one right and the other left? One of the interesting things in Latin, the word for left is sinistra. And it's where we get the word sinister from. So in ancient Europe, particularly Roman Europe, uh, the left side was considered to be the evil side, or the left side was considered to be the sinister side. And that carried through the Catholic Church. And please understand that most of your education systems in the Western world were religious to begin with. So you had Catholic schools. You also had Protestant schools. Uh, so a lot of the education that we get or the value that we have for education comes from religion to begin with. Now, that's neither good nor bad. It's not a reason to hate on religion or love religion. That's just historical fact. And so all the way up until really my, my dad's generation, uh, if you were writing with your left hand, you were considered, that was considered bad or wrong. And so they would, they would tie your left hand or force you to write with your right hand. And so you can see the idea of conformity already with the right-hand path, with just the way that historically we have treated left-handed people or people who stand out or people who are not going with the flow. So it's considered unnatural, right, back then to write with your left hand. And so they make you write with your right hand, but it had a deeper moral significance that goes way, 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 way back. And this is why this is so embedded in our consciousness. And you'll see why so many religions even if they don't call themselves religion, uh, even things that say we're not religious, but we're spiritual and we're into spirituality. But yet when you get into the content of the teaching, it's just a, a, a different tiger of the same species, right? It's, it's the same tiger as what we had in religion, at least in my mind, but it just has different stripes. Same species of animal, just a different animal. Well, here's why. So in ancient cultures, ancient religions, going way, way, way back to prehistoric times. Most of the time, the altars and the worship centered towards the east. So we have a tendency with our compasses and whatever to navigate or orient ourselves by the North Star, by the North, or by the North Pole. But in ancient cultures, you oriented to the east. That's why the word orient refers to the east. It would be oriented towards the eastern direction. Now, why would you be oriented towards the eastern direction? The reason you would be oriented towards the eastern direction is because that's where the sun rose. Now, keep in mind, for prehistoric people, darkness was a terrible time. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, we don't any football and baseball games with these really powerful lights that light up the whole field and make it like, you know, no different than playing in the daytime in terms of how well you can see the ball, you know, being pitched or hit or thrown or whatever the case may be. Obviously, this wasn't the way in prehistoric times. And you also had in, in you know, places like the cradle of civilization. If you've spent any time in certain places in Africa or around the equator, uh, nighttime can be a scary place because that's when the hyenas come out. Uh, that's when you can hear the roaring of the lions. I remember sleeping on the Serengeti the first night that we were there back in uh, 2005. 
and hearing the lions roar at night and how how <laughs> strange that was. So you had these predators that would come out at night and you couldn't see them. So nighttime was a scary time. Uh, nighttime was a cold time. Nighttime was a dark time. There were a lot of things you couldn't do. So you would get your work done and all the good stuff would happen during the day. So you already kind of see this good and evil sort of orientation between the light and the darkness. And so you would orient, you would do your, your, your worship, temples, altars, all this stuff would face the east. You would orient towards the east. And when you're oriented towards the east, then on the left hand is towards the north. The right hand is towards the south. And it was believed that, uh, the natural flow of things went from north to south because at least, at least in, uh, in the northern hemisphere. Because during summer, the north pole is tilted closer to the sun. So this is all oriented <laughs> oriented towards the sun, facing east, because that's where the sun comes up. Um, you've got your left hand towards the north, summer, your right hand towards the south, which would be winter. So it was believed that energy would enter, the energy of light would enter in through the left hand and leave through the right hand. Now, for those that would choose the left-hand path, instead of orienting towards the sun, they would turn around and or, or orient towards the east. They would turn around and orient towards the west. They would orient towards the west. And the west would be where the setting of the sun would be and the incoming, you know, the inception of darkness. And your right hand now is towards the north, and your left hand is towards the south, or towards darkness. So, the point is, orientation. That the left-hand path, or aspects of the left-hand path, are when you no longer orient with the natural order of things. You choose to go in opposition to that. You choose to challenge assumptions. You choose to reverse that. You choose to stand out in some way. So it's this idea of, rather than harmonizing with nature, it's this idea of going against nature. So there's that. And then you have all these motifs of light and darkness and good and evil. So you have what we call today white magic, which would be in the light, magic done in the light, and black magic, magic done in the dark. And it's generally considered that white magic is done for the good of the community. It's, 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 it's to work good. It's to work healing. It's to bring promotion and benefit again to community or to use law of one language. It's the path of service to others, right? It's community oriented. Whereas black magic would be considered, you know, cursing your enemies, um, doing stuff that you shouldn't be doing, using magic to bring harm. So the left-hand path got oriented towards, or the idea, the perception of the left-hand path, became in people's minds, black magic, dark magic, this sort of really selfish, self-indulgent, I don't care who gets hurt in the process. In fact, I'm going to use the natural forces of the universe or gods or demons to produce harm and bring harm to people. Whereas if I'm practicing in the, the day, I'm practicing in the light, that's when the community stuff 
could happen. So there's that aspect of it. <clears throat> now, so this is the interesting piece. And, and I got this, I picked this up from just one phrase that I read from Doug Wentz. So Doug, if you watch this, <laughs> and I'm not frozen up while I'm giving you a shout out, I'm giving you a shout out for your post. Because Doug mentioned and talked, talked about sun gods or sun cults or worship that was oriented towards the sun, S-U-N, versus the moon magic or the moon cults, that which was oriented towards the night or towards the darkness. And so you had gods and goddesses that represented both aspects of nature in that respect. And right-hand path approaches want to be in the sun completely. Now, if you think about the ancient concept of the heavens and the gods or God, particularly monotheism, that we're more familiar with, but even the, the bright gods of, you know, polytheistic religions, they're oriented towards the sun and they would be in the heavens or above the sun. And so here's the idea that the sun is the gateway, the sun is the portal S-U-N, it's the gateway or the portal into the realm of the gods, into the realm of deification. And so the idea is that you would go through the sun in order to get to God or in order to achieve angelic status or, or deific status, the, the status of a god, the status of a deity. And so obviously if you're going through the sun, then you're burning up. So the idea is, is that you would go through the sun and, and the sun, the fire from the sun, would disintegrate everything about you that made you an individual. And through that disintegration, through that burning process, through that going through the sun, you would lose yourself and achieve divine union. And in fact, the whole goal of Eastern religions is to get off of the cycle of birth, of, get off the cycle of reincarnation. Life is seen as full of suffering and full of hardship and full of difficulty. And the goal is to get off the karmic wheel of death and rebirth so that at the very least you can be a ascended master and you can kind of choose when you get to come back and you come back for the good of everybody else around you. Uh, and what keeps you stuck in that cycle of birth and death and rebirth is your actions in the previous life. And so karma means actions. So what keeps you stuck oftentimes is your attachments. So you can think about it this way. If at the end of your life you feel unfulfilled, maybe there was relationships that you didn't pursue. You know, you're one of those that sits back and thinks, oh, my God, if I would have only married my first love or my high school sweetheart, or maybe it's if I hadn't married my high school sweetheart, then I would have been available for this person. So you have a soul attachment, or you fell in love with somebody, you just loved them so much and they die and there's attachments there, attachments to your family. Uh, maybe you died in poverty, or you had some attachment to wealth, or you had some attachment to adventure or pleasure, and so that keeps you wanting to come back and keeps you stuck in this sort of cycle of reincarnation and death and rebirth. And so it made sense then to them, whereas, you know, in Christianity, the goal is to get to heaven and eternal bliss, and you do that by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. 
in these Eastern uh, concepts, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever, you're trying to get off the karmic wheel of reincarnation. And the way to do that is to detach from everything, to lose all of your attachments. And in the process, detaching from social justice. So the idea is, in Hinduism, if you're born with a good lot in life, then you have good karma from your past life, and you're getting what you deserve, and you're learning the lessons that you're supposed to learn. If you have a lower lot in life, if you're born, say, to the, a sect that's known over there as the untouchables, or you're born into a sect where there is hardship and difficulty in life, then that's your karmic pattern. And the only way for you to get off of that cycle is to work through or is to suffer the consequences in this life of what you did in the last life. And so if someone gets too involved with social issues or social justice or trying to improve the community, see, this is where it gets twisted. Because the right-hand path is supposed to be about community. It's supposed to be about service to others. But if you get involved in social issues, you're interrupting someone's karma. So how are you supposed to serve others when if you get involved in alleviating their suffering, you're messing with their karma, and so you're not doing it for their highest good? And this is why you'll find in a lot of metaphysical and New Age circles, they'll attach to their prayers or to their comments or to the work, energy work and whatever they're doing, or their intentions and working the law of attraction, what they call the law of attraction and whatever. That they're trying to do that for the highest good, and the presupposition is that we don't know what the highest good is because we're interfering with someone's karmic patterns if we do something to speak up for them or to try to improve life for them. Does this kind of make sense to you? Uh, so the idea, this brings us into the idea of the ego, and I want to talk about this because ego is a, is a frustrating term for me because of my background in psychology and the way I understand uh, consciousness. So Mary says the church doesn't do much about social justice. In fact, many are against it. No, yeah, absolutely. I, I was going to bring that up, but I thought I'd leave that alone. So thank you for bringing that up. The, the, the problem that I'm, or what I'm trying to illuminate here is the tire of different stripes, right? So we're leaving religion to become... Uh, flow into this sort of new age spirituality, which is really influenced by uh, importing ideas from the East. And so this idea of det detachment and stuff from reality, it's getting us to the same place. It's getting us to the same result. We think we're leaving one for the other and that the other is better, when in fact, we may be leaving the frying pan for, for the fire, for the sun, so I can dissolve. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that approach. If you want to dissolve and disintegrate your ego and your attachments and, and experience those states of union with God, I'm not saying that's not a valid path. I'm just trying to elucidate the difference between some of the things. And like I said, challenge some assumptions and just make you think. So... The ego. <laughs> Some people, when they hear the word ego, they think of a person who's very selfish. They think of a person who's very egotistical. They think of a person who is uh, haughty, arrogant, full of themselves. When they hear the term ego, that's, that's how they're used to understanding that term and using that term. 
In spiritual communities, we can use the term ego to be equal to the mind or even equal to the self. So this is where um, a lot of, you know, Eckhart Tolle's teachings, if you've read the book The Power of Now, which I strongly recommend, I think it's a great book, um, and I spent a lot of time in The Power of Now and working with those principles back in the early 2000s when the book first came out. But a lot of what Eckhart Tolle teaches and other spiritual teachers teach is detachment not just from things, not just from people in your life. In other words, not having attachments to materialism, not having attachments to outcomes in the what we would call the objective world, not having attachments to relationships. But they get into this detachment from the self. So the idea in Eckhart Tolle is you are not your mind. And that your mind is preoccupied with the past and the future. And he rightly points out the past no longer exists except in the mind. And the future does not yet exist except in the mind. And so we spend all this time developing ideas and attachments to our past and to the future. And we miss the present moment. Therefore, he brings up the power of now. And so the idea in the book is that you detach from the mind. You realize you are not the mind. You realize you are not the speaker in your head, the person talking in your head. You are not your self-talk. And you identify more with the listener. You're not the emotional experience that you're having and what he calls the pain body. You're not the pain body. You are to observe the pain body so that you're identifying with the observer and detaching from all these various things. And so the idea is that you detach from mind in order to bring in presence and that the observer is where you find real presence, where you find the real ground of being, and where you find your pathway to the divine. And then if we get into oneness teaching, that we are all one, that we are all one in the same thing and entity, and we're pursuing oneness consciousness, we're pursuing a path of non-dualism, which I'll try to point out is impossible in a minute, um, then we really want to detach from ourselves. So now we're not just talking about detaching from things and opinions and ideas and political parties and attachments out here in the world, but we're talking about detaching from our own mental processes and really detachment from the self. And so in that sense, the ego becomes this thing that creates illusions for us that we project onto our experiences and then our experiences are simply reflecting back to us the projection of our own mental, uh, feeding back to us our own mental projections. And in order to escape all that is to realize that all that stuff is just mental process and it's not real and to detach from it, which then leads to, again, this disillusion, this complete disillusion of the self in favor of this mystical union that people are pursuing or are after. Now, the problem with thinking that we can achieve non-dualism is this problem of what is objective and what is subjective. So let me define these terms. When I'm using the term objective, I'm talking about the world outside of you. Anything that is not you, that you can look at in your perceptions. If you're one of these that thinks, you know, we're all one, that's fine. I'm not even saying that you're wrong. But I want to at least be communicating clearly. So if that objection comes up, oh, no, 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 we're all one. 
just just bear with me a little bit, all right? So the objective reality is the world outside of you. That could be uh, nature. That could be the animals. That could be, you know, science is caught up in the uh, study of the objective world, right? And then you have this subjective universe. And the subjective universe is your personal inner experience, the thoughts that you're having, the dreams that you're having, the desires that you have, the pain that you have, your mental filters, your beliefs, basically your individuated consciousness, your experiences. Your experiences are not my experiences. I can say conceptually that we are one, but at the end of the day, your subjective world is different than my subjective world. And if our subjective worlds were, in fact, one, there would be no conflict because we would all be experiencing and, and feeling and thinking the same things. Obviously, that's not true. So the objective universe is that which is outside of the mind, outside of, let's just say that way, the subjective universe is your own mental and emotional sort of circle of reality. Now, here's why I would argue that non-dualism is to experience, let me put it this way, to experience non-dualism is impossible. Because in order to have any experience, there has to be an object and a subject. If we are going to say that, like the Course in Miracles says, that love is all there is, then we have to understand that in order for love to exist, there has to be a lover and a beloved. There has to be a sharing of experience, or it's not love. We're, we're talking about something else. We need to find a different term. So this is why the uh, early church fathers fought for the concept of the Trinity, because they really did believe that God was love, eternally existent love. But in order for God to be love, there had to be more than one. There had to be a lover and a beloved. So if we talk about Christ consciousness as this consciousness of love, then you cannot have love without dualism. You cannot have Christ consciousness and union at the same time because it's logically inconsistent. It's like physically impossible because there has to be two in order for knowledge or love to exist. So in other words, if I'm presenting you with different information, like maybe you didn't know that the Latin term for left hand is, is uh, where we get the English word sinister, and maybe you didn't know that we called the Orient, the East the Orient, because people used to orient to the East because of the rising of the sun, then I'm sharing with you information. That's the objective thing that we're talking about right now. And as that comes into your mind, you're having a subjective experience with that. So there is the knower and the object of that which is known. There's the knower and there's that which is known. There's the lover and that which is loved. There is the experience itself and the experiencer who has the experience. So therefore, if, if, there's, if, if there is non-dualism, if there's no dualism at all, then you can have no experience. Because there has to be that separation in order for that flow and that exchange to happen. To, 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 to come to complete oneness is to come to the realm of no experience. Because when there is complete oneness, there is no experience. Again, this is why the Trinity. Because you couldn't have God as just one, because then you would have nothing. No thing, literally no thing. So 
you had this eternally existent trinity of the Father loving the Son, and the Son loving the Father, and then the Holy Spirit being the love that was experienced between the Father and the Son. That's the original conceptualization of the Trinity, and the reason that the Christian Church fought for the conceptualization of the Trinity is because they were arguing from the perspective that God was love. You can't have love if you don't have two. So we get all twisted in thinking that I've got to get rid of the ego. Some people say the ego is edging God out. I've got to get rid of my subjective experience. Now I say, no, 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 not your subjective experience, just your attachments to subjective experience. But then where does that end? Because to experience detachment from my own experience, to experience detachment from myself, is not to get rid of, is an experience in and of itself. So how do I detach from the experience of witnessing the experience? You see what I'm saying? Like if I detach, if, if I take Eckhart Tolle's teachings and I detach from the mind, then and I'm the listener, I'm the observer, I'm the conscious presence now that's observing what's going on inside of me instead of attaching to it, I'm still having an experience, which means that is still something that I would have to detach from if I keep following that logic. It's never-ending. It is absolutely a loop until you eliminate experience altogether, and maybe that is oneness, but really, that's death. ceasing to exist. In order to have any experience, you have to have dualism. In order to have any love, you have to have dualism. You have to have a lover and a beloved. Now, the way I use ego, because I come from a psych- psychology perspective, is your sense of self, or to identify that subjective universe that we have, your sense of self. In fact, the word ego is a Greek word that simply means the I. So people say, well, I'm letting go of the ego to experience the I am, and they'll point to scripture. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God told Moses that he was the I am that I am. And so I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing detachment from the ego so that I can experience the I am, and the very source that you're drawing that information from is written in the Greek. <laughs> and so in the Greek language, when he says I am, he's saying ego, ego, Edami. I don't think I'm saying that second part quite right. It doesn't feel right when I say it. But ego edami or ego edami. In other words, ego's used. So if you say, well, I'm just experiencing the I am, you're actually saying I'm experiencing the ego. <laughs> Which is why I would say trying to get rid of the ego, trying to get rid of your sense of self is, is futile because you can't experience anything if you don't have a self from which to experience. If you don't have a self from which to interpret anything about reality. So they'll say, well, my interpretations about reality are unreal. My interpretations about reality that are in my mind are completely fantasy. The past doesn't exist. The future uh, has yet to exist. All that there is is the present moment. But but you still have a sense of self that's experiencing the present moment. You still have an ego that's experiencing the present moment. And so I don't. I, I find it very shallow. I find it very not very well thought out at all and kind of importing different things without really importing the full philosophies and understanding where some of these things come from. So I like the psychological approach better, which says the ego is your sense of self. And then from that place, we can talk about ego states. Because in reality, people who are trying to get rid of their ego are not getting rid of their ego. They are simply changing their state. 
They're shifting their perceptions. They're shifting their state of perception. They're going from, they're moving out of one ego state into another ego state. So, again, very simply, if I'm identified with the speaker in my head, uh, you know that voice that goes on in my head that maybe it's uh, the inner critic. Maybe I'm occupied with the past because I'm ashamed of what I did in the past. I'm traumatized by what happened in the past. You know, it's always these unpleasant things that we're trying to get rid of. Or I'm identified with my achievements. I really think I'm something because I've accomplished multiple degrees or uh, I've achieved some kind of social status or material status or something like this. Uh, do, do, do you see what I'm saying? Then, uh, then I'm attached, right, to the past. And I think that's me. I think that past me that had the achievements is me. I think that that past me that got hurt is me. I think that the emotional, uh, the, the, the shaming is me. So I'm identifying with the inner critic, which is an ego state. Your inner critic is an ego state. It is a sense of self that we either identify with or we disidentify. So if I take the position of the observer, if I take the position of the listener, the position of the watcher, the position of presence, all I've done is change my perception and I have shifted out of identification with the ego state or I've shifted out of being, I'm sorry, I've shifted out of the identification of the critic, the, the inner critic ego state or identifying with the inner critic and believing all that stuff about myself and I shift more into a different ego state that is now the listener or the observing. All I've done is shifted into a different ego state. I haven't gotten rid of my ego. I've just shifted states. Does that make sense? So, now let's, let's, Tie some of this together. I'm going to tie this all together with, with some Jungian psychology. <laughs> and I'll bring it back to what I was talking about with the left hand path. Um, so Carl Jung developed a lot of, a lot of really, really complex psychological concepts in his attempt to identify and define the mind and consciousness. So, the basic concept, you know, we hear about shadow work and the shadow self, which your shadow self is just another ego state. Doing shadow work is just working with those ego states that you have previously detached from or haven't detached from, whatever the case is in your personal experience. But the shadow only develops because of what Carl Jung called the persona. Now, the persona relates directly to the right-hand path. Because remember I said, in the original Sanskrit, the, the origination of the idea of a left-hand path is to awaken and not follow the herd. It's to awaken from herd mentality. It is to awaken from the herd mentality. Well, what is the herd mentality? The herd mentality is the community. So what Carl Jung defined as the persona, we might call the social self. It's the self that I put out to others. Or, from this perspective of the sun and orientation and north and south and left-hand path, the persona is the part of me that I bring into the light. So, 
when I wake up in the morning, my hair is a complete wreck. <laughs> bad breath. I haven't brushed my teeth. I haven't showered. I tend to have oily skin and pores and whatever. So I've got this greasy hair that's standing up all over the place. I got bad breath, right? Um, I've got dirt and oil and stuff on my face. So I'm not going to just go out in public like that. I'm not going to present myself to you guys like that. That's not the part of me that I bring into the light. I mean, I could picture myself like that and post it on Facebook. Then I'd be bringing that part of me into the light. But for what point, right? So for just on the basis of our physical appearance, there are things that we do in order to fit into society or to be respectful of others or to do for the sake of the community. So I don't, uh, but also for the sake of self. So these things overlap. Like if I'm going out with crazy hair and body odor and bad breath, people aren't going to want to be around me. Right? So that's going to cause me to suffer. <laughs> right? So part of my grooming is service to self. Part of my grooming is individual. Part of my grooming is left-hand path. But then part of my grooming is respect for other people. And uh, wanting to make a contribution to other people and realizing I wouldn't be taken seriously if I showed up with my hair all crazy and bad breath and whatever. Nobody, <laughs> I wouldn't, you know, uh, I'm a counselor by trade. I, I, who wants to sit with a counselor like that, you know? So I'm doing that in service to others. So I'm doing it in service to myself because I want to have friends and I want to be successful and I want to be liked and I want to present myself and I'm doing it for service to others. So these two are not mutually exclusive. They can certainly overlap. <laughs> but then Jung would say that we have a psychological self that we groom. We have a psychological self that is conditioned by society and reinforced by the community. So this is what would my family think? If I did this, what would my family think? Or if I didn't do this, what would my family think? Pick any behavior. If I did this, if I do this, what will society think? If I don't do this, what will society think? What will my neighbors think? So there's these cultural norms that are reinforced. And then above that, there's sort of these social mores, these taboos that we have, uh, these ideals that we have. We automatically assume that being loving is a high ideal that we should achieve, that we should strive to achieve, to, to love other people, to love our neighbor, to love our enemy. That, that's something that we presume in our culture to be desirable. And nobody's going to reflect poorly on us if we talk about love, right? Very social. It's a, it's a social ideal, social more. And then we have these social taboos. So, for example, you know, showing up with my hair all crazy and bad breath and body odor and stuff, I'm violating social taboos. Right? So, and then that goes into all kinds of other moral, moralistic kind of things. And so... That's the persona. The persona is the me that I present to the world, the psychological self, the personality self, the ego states that I present to the world. That is the result of my social conditioning. It's the me that's in the light. But now if you think about this, if the sun's coming up, because we tend to think of light and darkness as completely separate things. They're not separate things. They're not binary. They are not uh, mutually exclusive. You can see right here, well, right here, there's a shadow. I've got a light above me, and 
you can see my face and the light on my face, but you can see my shadow right here. So the light always creates a shadow. And so this is where uh, Carl Jung's idea of the shadow self came in. That that now here's what I want you to see. This this is darkness, right? This shadow is darkness. If there's a light in front of me, I'm going to have a shadow behind me. That shadow is darkness. But here's the thing. The darkness is born of the light. The shadow is born of the light. If I turn out the light, there's no shadow. So it's the light that actually gives birth to the shadow. And so Carl Jung's saying the same thing. This self that we bring, this social self that we bring to the light, to everybody else, automatically creates for us a shadow because invariably, to various different degrees, we are going to have incongruencies inside of us, incongruencies inside of our desires, incongruencies in, in, inside of our character. So if we think, let's say that love is the path of light, and it's certainly social. So I want to be loving and I want to present myself as loving to everybody, but the truth is, I've got part of me that gets pissed off at people. i got part of me that gets really pissed off at people. And so I, I will hide that. Uh, maybe you've had a situation where uh, someone in your family pissed you off and you, didn't, you wanted to keep the peace in the family. And so you felt angry, but you didn't present anger to that person. Or you went to work and your boss gave you something and pissed you off, but you don't want to present the anger to your boss, so even though you're angry, you hide that. So that's that's the shadow. In other words, it's not okay to show those things. It's not okay to have those incongruencies based on whatever kind of social conditioning that we've had. And so we have these parts, we have these layers. We are so complex. We are so multifaceted. There are so many states that we go in and out of all day long and, and all week long. There are so many different e parts of us and parts of ourselves and ego states and stuff like that. And so we tend to avoid the shadow. We don't go into the shadow. We don't go into the darkness. We don't go into those things where we feel the incongruencies and explore them enough that if we find something that leads to our own bliss, watch this, we find something that leads to our own bliss, but it's outside the light. In other words, it's other than these social constructs that we have grown up with, what will the neighbors think? What will my family think? What will the church think? What will society think if I this? So the culture and the society reinforces the persona, right? So there are things we end up doing that we don't want to do. There are things that we want to do that we don't do. Because we are conforming. Right? So, the left-hand path, the left-hand path says, remember, the right-hand path is about community. The left-hand path is about self-development. So, the left-hand path says, sort of, I'm going to leave the objective world, if you will, and I'm going to dive deeply into the sub subjective world. I am going to know myself. I'm going to know myself in the desirable parts, the things that I desire about myself, things I like about myself, and I'm going to know myself in the undesirable parts and the things I don't like about myself. I'm going to know myself in my social context, 
and I'm going to know myself in my private con- uh, context. And so this is where it becomes scary. Because in the left-hand path, you really are forging your own way. You're forging and finding your own spiritual path. And it begins by discovering your own personhood. It begins by discovering your own temperament. It begins by discovering true self-knowledge. So rather than self-obliteration, rather than self-detachment, rather than just observing the self, now observing the self can be part of knowing the self. Again, I'm not advocating for one or the other. I'm just contrasting and giving you some things to think about. Because certainly there are aspects of Eckhart Tolle's teaching on the power of now that have been very, very helpful for me that I uh, still you know, teach some of my clients to do to this day. Because we need to be able to detach and shift our states and that kind of stuff. I just don't see it in the same absolute terms that I saw it in when I was first exposed to the information back in 2003, 2004. I've had almost 20 years to live with it and season it and whatever, and so hopefully it's, it's more seasoned. So that can be part of self-knowledge, right? But instead of detaching from self and trying to get rid of self, the left-hand path fully embraces the self. The left-hand path fully embraces all parts of self. The left-hand path fully embraces our humanity. Instead of trying to go through the sun gate and be obliterated of everything that's human so that I can achieve and attain some spiritual status that makes me more than human, which is its own form of egotism. It's its own form of, I'm better than human. I'm spiritual. I've left religion. I've gone for spirituality. We're back to that original definition of being egotistical, making myself superior to my own self or my own humanity. So the left-hand path says, I'm going to embrace the darkness. I'm going to embrace all the aspects of me. I'm going to love myself. I'm going to love my shadow self. I'm going to do things for the purpose of self-development and self-service. Listen, service to self and service to others is not mutually exclusive. It's another false, that is a false dualism. That is a false duality. That is a false separation to say that you can't do both. It's an either or. Either I'm in service to self or I'm in service to others and it can't be both. Well, I just proved it with my grooming illustration, right? I'm grooming because I want to look good and I want to be liked. And I want to be as attractive, I want to maximize, you know, whatever attractiveness I have at this stage of my life and journey so that I can have positive experiences in my community so that I can make an impact on my community, right? But I'm also doing it for the community. How, in fact, can I be of service to others if I have not yet first been in service to myself? If I have not yet first developed myself and worked on myself and grown myself and maximized my own potential through my own personal self-knowledge and self-development, how then can I be of great service to others? If I abandon myself, how can I serve others? And here's the problem with abandoning and, and separating and, and making the mind bad. What happens is, and I have seen this repeatedly for 20 or more years, is that people throw out reason and logic and common sense and become detached completely from reality. And you, if you throw out common sense, if you throw out reason and you're detached from reality, you cannot engage your community. You cannot engage the, the objective world around you and be of any qualitative or quantitative service to others. 
So it's not an either or thing. But I guess the, what bothers me is so many that are following the right-hand path think the right-hand path is the only way and think it's the way you have to go. This is reality. This is the truth. This is how you have to do it. And so, again, it's the same tiger of different stripes. They're just creating a new religion. They're being just as passionate trying to convert people, say, no, the right-hand path is the right path. And because it is so deeply embedded in our consciousness, going all the way back to our ancestors and how they oriented, because it's deeply embedded in our social mores, because it's still embedded within Judeo-Christian terminology, Christ consciousness, the I am presence, all that stuff, then it's it's very appealing because the left-hand path of self-knowledge is scary as hell. Because you don't have the clear guidelines, you don't have the clear definitions. And you you but 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 the flip side is you get the opportunity to discover yourself. What makes you happy? What is your bliss? And you have the opportunity to say to hell with everything else. If it doesn't coincide with my bliss, I'm going to follow my bliss. And by following my bliss, I'm going to develop myself. And by developing myself, I'm going to be of greater service to humanity. Isn't that what the shamans did? The shamans in the indigenous communities. Didn't they go on spirit journeys and and do all kinds of shadow work and go into the underworlds and face the things that they were most afraid of and 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 explore fully the subjective consciousness and the world outside of the what the community had and so they they had a spiritual knowledge they had a healing knowledge that came from self development that then they could take back into their community to be the healers in their community to be the spiritual guides in their community And they were different. And it was their difference that came out of the development of their subjective reality and subjective world and subjective experiences, learning how to shift their state out of normal waking consciousness into other states of consciousness as an individuated self, not as a self that's totally absorbed into the community. If they were a self totally absorbed into the community, they would have nothing to bring to the community because there would be no difference between them and the community. And so what I'm arguing for is this, 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 this path of differentiation and self-knowledge and self-love and self-discovery and service to self that whereby you can find your bliss, you can find your potentials, you can find what you're good at, and you can maximize those into a fully self-actualized person. Which brings me back to my last point and the last psychologist I'll mention, and that's Abraham Maslow. The thing I love about Abraham Maslow and what separated Maslow and his system of psychology from the other early psychologists like Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung and uh, Adler and uh, who's the guy, uh, the guy that developed, uh, Fritz Perls. You know, those, those, those were the early psychologists, Adler and Freud, Jung and Perls. They were dealing with very, very, very neurotic people. They were dealing with very mentally maladjusted people, very delusional people, people with, you know, genuine mental illness, which is a real thing, by the way. Your brain is an organ in your body, so it can become diseased just like your liver or your heart or any other part of your body. So they're looking at people who could not manage their lives even at the most basic level and they're delving into their psyche and then they're saying here's the pattern for all of humanity 
Maslow took a totally different approach. Maslow said, I want to find the most successful, the most impactful, the most world-changing, the most satisfied and the happiest people, and I want to find out how they think and how they work. And so he developed his system <laughs> from a completely different starting place. And so if you've ever had any class in psychology, I mean, I got this in high school, any basic class in psychology, but if you haven't, you can look up Maslow's hierarchy, Maslow's hierarchy of human need. And it's a triangle, it's a pyramid. At the very top, you have what's called self-actualization, what he called self-actualization. It's resting on what lies below it. And what lies below it are the fulfillment of needs. And at the base of the triangle is safety and security needs. So safety and security needs are, are this. Safety and security needs are, are um, food and water and shelter. I mean, stuff you have to have. Safety from your neighbors <laughs> who want to kill you. <laughs> or safety from your enemies that, that want to kill you or whatever, right? So that's the most basic thing. And what here's what Carl Jung would say. Not Carl Jung. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Maslow would say, until those needs are met, you cannot move up the ladder. So once you have the basic needs met, once you are, uh, you know, you're not worried about your bills, you don't have bill collectors calling you all the time, you're not afraid of being homeless, and you can eat and take care of your family, then you can move on to the next thing, which was your social and emotional needs. So physical needs, now the social and emotional needs. So this is, again... Uh, who's my tribe? Who's my community? Who are the people that give me support when I'm going through tough times? The scripture says quite accurately, it's not good for man to be alone, right? And so who's my family? Who's, who's on my team? Who's in my corner? Uh, who do I turn to in need? Who do I go and have fun with and enjoy life with and share experiences with? And those are genuine needs. Who loves me? Who gives me attention? Who gives me acceptance? I find that group of people. Now those social-emotional needs are met. Now, here's the great thing about what Maslow's can contribute to this conversation in regards to the left and the right-hand path, is once my needs are met, then I can self-actualize. Now, self, now actualizing is the expression of potential. I remember John Gruden told Tim Tebow, I remember watching, if you're into Football. Of course, I'm a Bronco fan. I make no bones about that. But when uh, John Gruden used to have this thing that he, he did like quarterback camp or something, those quarterbacks that were coming out of college into the NFL. And he was talking to Tim Tebow, and everybody was saying, you know, before he got drafted by the Broncos, that Tim Tebow had uh, potential. And John Gruden said this statement. He said, potential means you haven't done it yet. And man, that, that rocked me. That rattled me. I, I, that stayed with me since I heard it. Potential means you haven't done it yet. It's lying in a state waiting to be expressed and done and actualized. So actualization is potential, is no longer potential because you've done it. So in other words, he's telling Tim Tebow, yeah, they're saying you got a lot of potential. That means you aren't where you need to be. Actualization is, you know, in other words, yeah, Tebow, you've got potential, but you're not where you need to be as a quarterback to play in the NFL. You got the potential to do it, but the potential means you haven't done it yet. 
Actualization is the opposite of that. Actualization says, I've done it. Actualization says it's manifested. So self-actualization is the full expression of all the potentialities that are within yourself that you want to actualize. So what, what Maslow is saying is that you cannot actualize your potential as a human being, again, to contribute to the community, to be of service to others, to be of service to humanity. You cannot actualize that until you have gotten these other needs met. You can't even get into the actualization. You can't become a concert pianist, for example, if you are worried about where your next meal is going to come from. You cannot become, you know, a whatever. Whatever it is. That the, and this is where the left-hand path is so great because, yeah, okay, so we'll say we're all one. Well, I'd say we're all part of one thing, sure. But we're not all one because I don't have the same potential that you have. And you don't have the same potential that I have. And if I start trying to make a religion out of something and say, you have to follow my path, you have to follow my way, you have to think like I think, you have to do what I say, you have to surrender to my authority, which is right-hand path. Right-hand path surrenders to authority. The left-hand path says no to that. <laughs> so so the, the thing is, is okay, maybe from a certain perspective, we're all made of the same thing, we're all divine, we're all part of the human species, however you want to, we're all part of a universe, multiverse, however you want to understand oneness. But at the end of the day, we're very different. And so, in order for me to actualize myself, my needs have to be met. So here's the thing that's so ironic. You may look at Maslow and think self-actualization. A lot of Christians do this. They look at Maslow and they see self-actualization. And they say, that's just selfishness. That's just all about self. That's just that's just ego on steroids or that's the flesh or whatever. But the reality is, is that a lot of people spend their day worried about their unmet needs and become very self-centered and become very selfish. Whereas the actualized person is so fulfilled that they're not thinking about consuming anymore. As long as you're needs-driven, you're just being a consumer. How can I get enough food? How can I get enough? How can I get enough love? How can I get enough attention? How can I get enough friends? How can I get enough social status? It's never enough. And what Maslow's saying is there's this transcendent place that you can get to where you're not consumed, your every waking thought and moment is not consumed with what you can consume upon yourself. You're so liberated from that that you now have the ability and you're developed to the point that you've done it. It's not just potential anymore. And that's when you can plug back into the community. That's when you can be of greatest service to others and the most fulfilled in the service that you're giving to others. I served others as a pastor for over 20 years. <laughs> and I, and we did some great things, man. I mean, I can go through a litany of accomplishments and things that we did to make life better for other people. Very few people. In fact, most of the people that go to my church, they can't relate to the religious trauma page because they're like, that wasn't our experience. <laughs> I wasn't traumatized in that way going to, you know, being part and involved in the church that we were going to that you were leading. And I'm flattered by that. I'm honored by that. I had someone tell me that this week. It can't resonate with the religious trauma part because that just wasn't their experience. 
So I'm just saying we did we did a lot. We did a lot of charitable stuff. We did a lot to help the poor. We did we did a ton of stuff. I mean, I could go through a list of those things. I did mission work, travel, but at the end of the day, I woke up at 40 in my mid 40s and I wasn't satisfied. I woke up in my mid 40s and I didn't know myself. I woke up in my mid 40s and there were parts of myself that I had edited and said they weren't okay. And I was living out some kind of cut-out version of myself. And yeah, I looked good in the light. I had this shadow side that was rising up. And it feels evil, and it feels wicked, and it feels demonic. And the left-hand path says, embrace this stuff. So I guess what I would advocate for, then, is a middle path. I'm certainly not saying find all the evil, wicked things inside yourself, painful things inside yourself, and indulge yourself as much as you can in them. And in that, you'll find liberation. Now, there are people that teach that, and there are people that have gone into that and found liberation. Have them tell me. You know, I've talked to them and have them tell me. In my darkness, I found my light. But I'm also saying it's completely unrealistic, for me at least, to do this right-hand path. I'm not a right-hand path guy. So perhaps there's a middle path. So I argue for being a spiritual warrior and being someone who's not all love and light, but someone who knows how to dwell in the twilight, who knows how to dwell in the balance and the blending, who knows how to uh, live in the day and enjoy the night who is comfortable in the day of sunlight, but is also willing at nighttime to not disappear when the sun goes down. <laughs> to not disappear when the sun goes down, but to become a moon, to become an object that reflects light of the sun, or better yet, to become your own star that stands out differentiated, but is still bringing light into a dark and suffering world. Being your own star, following your own trajectory, letting your own light shine, developing and actualizing yourself in order that you can be service to others. And I just don't hear anybody really talking about that much in the circles and voices that I'm finding on YouTube or on the Internet or on Facebook. So I hope this was helpful for you. I hope it challenged some assumptions. I hope it was easy to be consumed, <laughs> consumable for you. I hope it was a blessing to you. Thank you for watching. Uh, and I say this every time, and sometimes I don't get time to do it. Um, particularly in the summer, I got boys that are home all day during the week, and they're very active on the weekends. Um, and so we try to do stuff on Sunday afternoons. But uh, thank you so much for spending this time with me. And uh, God bless you. Namaste. Bye con Dios. Good luck. Be blessed. May fortune shine on you. <laughs> may your highest and best come to you. And may you find the path that will lead to the expression.